Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back to the podcast, and today we have Dr. Johan Klucher, ear, nose, and throat surgeon affiliated with the Department of Surgery at Steve Biko Academic Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Klucher. What is your approach to a patient who presents to you in your rooms with a neck mass? I think like any condition in medicine, a sound knowledge of the anatomy is critical. Once you know the most likely anatomical structures being involved together with the proper history and likelihood according to your patient profile, it's quite easy to get to a diagnosis. So I want to start off and have a look at the revision of the anatomy. This will also help us to have a systematic approach in the future and also preventing preventing us from memorizing every possible diagnosis. What are the anatomical triangles of the neck? The neck can be divided in two anterior and two posterior triangles, with the sternocleidomastoid muscle being the posterior border of the anterior triangle and the anterior border of the posterior triangle. The midline of the neck forms the medial border of both the anterior triangles and the trapezius muscle forms the posterior margin of each posterior triangle. That means you've got a posterior and anterior triangle on the left and of course then a posterior and an anterior triangle on the right. An easy way to remember it is, is the anterior triangles being upside down and the posterior triangle being an upright triangle with the base of the posterior triangle being the clavicle and the base of the anterior triangle being the superior border um, of the mandible. How are the major structures related to the triangles in the neck? So the major structures are located all in the anterior triangles, with the only exception being the accessory nerve that's in the posterior triangle. So let's have a look at the major structures. If we first look at the midline, and we start from superior to inferior, we obviously first palpate the hyoid bone, followed by the thyroid cartilage with the notch, or more prominent in a male, and that's the so-called Adam's apple. The next structure is the cricothyroid membrane, followed by the cricoid cartilage, and of course, then the tracheal rings with the trachea. Now, the isthmus of the thyroid gland may be palpated over the first two tracheal rings, and it's got its right and left lobe overlying the cricoid and the thyroid cartilage. A normal thyroid gland is usually not easily palpable. Where is the carotid bulb? I want us to move a little bit more to the lateral aspect of the anterior triangle lateral to the midline structures, of course, is the carotid bulb. Now, it can usually be palpated medial to the sternocleidomastoid muscle at the level of the hyoid bone. The internal jugular vein is just lateral to the carotid. So once you can palpate the carotid bulb, you obviously know where the internal jugular vein is most likely to be, um, to be running. What is the anatomy of the parotid gland? The parotid gland lies over the angle of the mandible, in front and below the ear. It extends medially between the mastoid process and the posterior border of the mandible and its borders are distinct and difficult sometimes to delineate on palpation. As once again with the thyroid gland, a normal parotid gland is usually not that prominent on a palpation. So an enlarged parotid gland can be pathological. Where is the tail of the parotid gland? It's important to always think about the parotid tail being involved in a patient presenting with a mass just inferior to the earlobe. So a mass 
at the inferior aspect of the ear lobe, just at the angle of the jaw, the parotid tail must form part of, um, part, part of your differential diagnosis. Where are the submandibular glands? Now, the submandibular salivary glands are located just below the body of the mandible. And these glands usually can be distinguished from lymph nodes in this region due to their symmetry. Um, unless, of course, the patient had previous surgery with removal of one or even both of these glands. Which normal structures in the neck can be palpated and be thought to be pathological? First is the transverse process of C1. Now, that's usually a hard structure being palpated between the mastoid process and the angle of the mandible. The hyoid bone, um, the carotid bulb, specifically when it's atherosclerotic, and then the submandibular salivary gland. So once you know the anatomy and you know exactly what to expect when examining a patient's neck in that specific region, you're more likely to know what is pathological or not. It's not always that easy, but I think it's a good approach to start off with. And like I mentioned, the anterior triangles contain the major structures with the only exception, the posterior triangle consisting of the spinal accessory nerve. Um, the rest of the posterior triangle in its content is just lymph nodes. And I will elaborate a little bit later about the importance of this nerve. What is meant by the levels of the neck? For description and classification and even diagnostic purposes, the neck can be divided in six levels. And I, I really want to emphasize trying to think always at the level of the presentation of the of the mass and that will definitely guide one to the most likely diagnosis uh, and patho pathology how do you approach the lymph nodes the level of the lymph nodes like i said can guide you as a practitioner and um, as you know as we all know throughout the body all structures drain to a specific group of lymph nodes i mean and this is the same in the neck region so we can divide the lymph node groups in the neck um, from level um, one to level six. So level one is usually then including your submandibular and submental lymph node groups. Um, for interesting sake, the level one um, is classified again in level one A and B with one A being your submental region and one B being the submandibular region. So the submandibular salivary gland forms part of level one B and this typically drain the oral cavity and the floor of the mouth. Why is this important? The significance of this is that a patient presenting with a lymph node or a mass in the submandibular or submental region needs a proper examination of the oral cavity and the floor of mouth. Which lymph nodes does the oropharynx drain into? Level 2, 3 and 4 encompass usually lymph nodes all along the internal jugular vein deep to your sternocleidoid mastoid from superior to inferior, the neck is then divided in an upper, middle and lower third and that respectively is level 1, level 2, 3 and 4. Now this typically once again drains the oropharynx, the larynx and the thyroid. Where do we find the level 5 lymph nodes? Is the nodes in the posterior triangle and this usually drains the nasopharynx. Now level 5 lymph nodes is quite common, especially in children and especially in viral infections and it's not unusual to be palpated even sometimes in a healthy child. And where do we find the last level, level number 6 of the lymph nodes? Level 6 then lies between the carotid arteries in the midline and it usually contains the pre-laryngeal and pre-tracheal lymph nodes. Now this obviously is also drained by the larynx and by the thyroid. Why is it so important to know about these levels of lymph nodes? The reason why I'm emphasizing on the importance of this background knowledge is to, to examine the specific region of drainage according to the presenting level and then establish a diagnosis. 
if you have a lymph node or a mass in that specific level, you immediately know which anatomical region it's draining from, and that needs also to be a part of your examination. Dr. Klucher, can you suggest a logical way to approach common neck masses? As I stated, the anatomy is the cornerstone. But the following questions for me personally uh, is, is of utmost importance to help the clinician in dividing the presenting problem usually in one of the following groups. So it can be infectious or inflammatory, it can be congenital, it can be metabolic, vascular, drug-related, and then of course, new plastic. Can you tell us more about infective or inflammatory conditions? I'd like to emphasize that this group is by far the most common cause of a neck mass and this is usually the result of inflammation caused by a self-limited infection that resolves within weeks. This is also the number one cause in children. To start off with then let's look at a lymph adenitis. Now lymph adenitis can be bacterial, it can be viral of course and fungal of nature. So let's first look at bacterial conditions with streptococcus, staphylococcus and myobacterial being the most common bacterial causes of a lymphadenitis. Now staphylococcal can be secondary to a tonsillitis or a pharyngitis with staphylococcal um, secondary usually to an insect bite or trauma. How does a mycobacterial infection present? Mycobacteria can typically present in the cervical region as a cold abscess. What is a cold abscess? Cold abscess refers usually to an abscess that lacked that intense inflammation that we usually would have expected with infection. And a more mean, meaningful t t term that we use today is cervical tuberculous lymphadenopathy. Now, physical manifestations usually can include a firm rubbery node becoming more firm and they can sometimes be matted. Infre infrequently can actually fluctuate and then they can rupture and drain a fistula. But the important thing here is the, uh, the absence of any acute inf inflammatory um, signs, and signs. When should one suspect a cold abscess? It's always important to have a high index of suspicion, specifically, of course, in the immunocompromised patient presenting with a lump and a draining fistula. Can you summarize bacterial lymphadenitis for us? Bacterial lymphadenitis is extremely common. The most common that you will see in the children population will be secondary to a tonsillitis or a pharyngitis. And remember, not all tonsillitis and or pharyngitis needs um, oral antibiotics. What are common viral infections which cause lymphadenopathy? Epstein-Barr virus, uh, cytomegalovirus, herpes simplex, and HIV being um, the most uh, common virus. What is important about an Epstein-Barr virus infection or infective mononucleosis as it is also known? Now this typically presents in young children. It's not exclusively, but adults can also um, be in infected. But adults are usually presenting with less symptoms. Now the most typically symptoms that a child, a young child will present with is a sore throat, nasal blockage, fever, and clinical examination then reveals general lymph adenopathy with red and swollen tonsils. These patients are usually pale on appearance, and the parents will typically, and that's classically actually, mention the child not responding to antibiotics for tonsillitis being prescribed for the past 7 to 10 days. They can also sometimes snore and there's history of, of, the, of the child suddenly starting to snore and that's usually due to acute adenoiditis with inflamed adenoid tissue with the, the, in, the infective process involving the lymphoid uh, tissue. Which other systems are affected by Epstein-Barr virus infection? Hepatosplenum megaly also um, being a, quite a, a dangerous uh, presentation because in 30% of patients 
you can get a spontaneous splenic rupture. It's likely a rare complication. Um, and I think it's important to emphasize to the parents to prevent the child being too active and at risk, uh, specifically um, refer from um, active sports. How do we treat Epstein-Barr virus infection? Now, the treatment is supportive. The antibiotics are contraindicated unless there's secondary bacterial infection. EBV um, is also the cause of a lot of patients actually being diagnosed with a penicillin allergy um, due to the development of a rush after being treated um, with amoxicillin or penicillin der der derivatives. And usually it's because it's being prescribed wrongfully as a young child. What is cat scratch disease? Cat scratch disease. It's usually caused by Bartonella hensula. That's also an important diagnosis to keep in the back of one mind, specifically because it can sometimes even mimic uh, the possibility of an underlying lymphoma with the child presenting typically with cervical lymph adenopathy. Now, cat scratch disease is an infection that's usually caused by cats after a scratch or a bite. The diagnosis is usually established with serology, but in rare cases, an excisional biopsy of a lymph node is needed to confirm the diagnosis. Now, this is usually treated with course of antibiotics um, with either one of your quinolones or even with one of the sulfonamides. Um, that's back. What about HIV and cervical lymphadenopathy? HIV to all of us is quite well known in South Africa. It's got a high prevalence and um, specifically in the Edenic region, uh, your patient can present a lot of times with cervical lymphadenopathy, parotid megaly and lymphoid hyperplasia. Now this can be a tonsillar, adenotonsillar or even lingual tonsillar hypertrophy. Um, what I want to emphasize here is to always, once again, have a high index of suspicion in the undiagnosed HIV patient presenting suddenly with snoring, difficulty swallowing, and um, cervical lymph adenopathy, with the snoring being um, secondary to um, uh, adenoidal hypertrophy and the difficulty swallowing due to uh, tonsillar enlargement. Are these symptoms always only caused by HIV lymphadenopathy? Um, that can also be secondary to lymphoma. Um, that forms part of your differential diagnosis, once again, in an HIV patient presenting with um, with enlarged lymphoid um, tissue. What are some common inflammatory head and neck conditions? Sialoadenitis, and this can be the parotid, it can be the submandibular or the sublingual salivary gland. And this is usually due to obstruction secondary to a calculus or a stone, with the submandibular gland usually being involved the most common. And this can then lead to secondary bacterial infection. What about thyroiditis? is more typical in females, can sometimes be seen in men, but thyroiditis presents it as an enlarged thyroid. So you have a patient presenting with a midline enlarged mass, typically in the region of the thyroid. Now this entails further workup and this will include thyroid functions, antibodies, necessary um, ultrasound studies. What is a plunging runula? Ranula is either a mucus retention cyst arising from an obstructive sublingual gland. A simple ranula is usually confined to the oral cavity, so typically you will see a patient presenting with a cystic mass unilateral in the floor of the mouth. Plunging ranula usually may pierce then through the mylohyoid and it presents as a paramedian or a lateral neck mask. So a ranula is a mucus retention cyst. You can get a simple ranula that will be confined to the oral cavity or when it enlarges, it can actually, like I said, plunge through the mylohyoid 
and presents as a lateral neck mass. Now cyst aspiration uh, usually then um, reveals fluid with a high level of protein and salivary amylase because from salivary gland origin. And CT or MRI scan will usually demonstrate a uniloculated cystic mass arising from the sublingual space with extension then into the submental the submandibular and real big masses a peripharyngeal space. How do you treat these? Treatment of this is surgical and that's usually removal of the sublingual salivary gland. What are some other inflammatory disorders that we should be aware of? I think it's just important to mention it. The sarcoidosis, Kawasaki disease, Rusai-Dorfman and Langerhans cell histocytosis. Can you tell us about congenital neck masses? Now, congenital masses always form part of your differential. And I think the most common uh, mass in the neck of um, congenital nature is, of course, a thyroglossal duct cyst. Presents usually in children and adolescents as an asymptomatic mass at or just below the level of the hyoid bone. They How do you diagnose them clinically? Commonly elevate um, with tongue protrusion. Now, external sinuses involving the pharynx may rarely occur. Um, and then this can be infected and even sometimes form a fistula. But the most common presentation is usually a midline mass that moves with, with swallowing and also, like I said, elevate with tongue protrusion. What is the preoperative workup for a thyroglossal cyst? Now, the preoperative workup has been a source of controversy. It's recommended to evaluate the patient's thyroid functions as well, and you can use an ultrasound or a CT scan. But something that I want to emphasize that's extremely important is not to aspirate a midline cyst if you have the opinion that it can be a possible thyroglossal duct cyst. How do you treat them? This is usually managed with, um, with surgery and a called procedure that um, is called the cyst trunk procedure and during, during this, usually during this procedure the central portion of the hyoid um, is included as part of this, the resection and it's dissected together with the cyst. Are these pre-malignant lesions? Thyroglossal duct cysts can sometimes in rare conditions actually um, have malignant transformation uh, to form thyroglossal duct cancer. Moving to another type of congenital lesion, what are brachial cysts? Now, developmental aberrations of the brachial system gives rise to brachial anomalies. And these anomalies might present as either a cyst, a sinus or a fistula and can be divided once again into a first, a second, a third and a fourth brachial cleft cyst. Out of these brachial anomalies, which is the most common? The second brachial cleft cyst are the most common. They are 90% of um, brachial anomalies and they usually present as a spont spontaneously as a painless fluctuant mass of the anterior triangle in infant. These lesions may fluctuate sometimes over an after an upper tract infection and they can also present in adulthood not being, not being really very common. Can you tell us a little bit about laryngoceles? They are most frequently seen in the adult population and they usually present as a lateral neck mass and they can present in the pediatric population as well. And they are thought to form usually congenitally as a result of an enlargement of the laryngeal saccule. And it's usually the indistendent with entrapment of air. can be classified as either an internal, or external or a combined laryngoceles. What is the difference between an internal and an external laryngoceles? Um, with your internal laryngeal seal is usually confined just to the larynx. 
Typically, the patient will present with hoarseness and even in worst cases, respiratory to distress as, as not that much um, a neck mass. With an external laryngeal seal, will usually protrude through the thyroid highwood ligament and these lesions will then present as a soft, compressible lateral neck mass that may distend usually with increase in intralaryngeal pressure. If infected, then they are usually classified as a laryngopiocele. Asymptomatic laryngeal seals in children usually require no surgical treatment. And symptomatic laryngeal seals and, of course, laryngeal seals usually need surgery with an internal laryngeal seal being managed by, by um, transoral approach and externally, usually um, external approach. Are there any other midline congenital lesions we need to know about? Just for completeness and sake, I want to mention dermoid and teratoid cysts, and they are rare causes of neck masses, and they usually present as a midline mass. Are there any congenital lesions that are not found in the midline that we should know of? Important just to know about it in the back of one's mind is a so-called sternomastoid tumor of infancy. Now, a sternomastoid tumor of infancy is also known as a pseudotumor, and it's a fibrotic lesion of the distal sternocleidomastoid. Now, these lesions usually present within the first 7 to 28 days of birth as a firm mass within the sternocleidomastoid. Theology is still a no, but there is a theory that, that a possible hematoma that's forming in the sternocleidomastoid during the traumatic delivery with subsequent fibrosis leads to this clinical presentation. How do you manage these? Usually it's just managed by aggressive physical therapy and a range of move, motion exercises uh, will lead to a resolution of this lesion. What are some of the vascular masses that our listeners should be aware of in the head and neck area? Now, vascular masses include paragangliomas, vascular malformations, with the typical presentation of a paragonglioma or a carotid body tumor being a slow-growing pulsating mass in the region of level 2. That means in the region of the carotid bifurcation. That means in the region of the hyoid bone. Now, I can't emphasize enough how important it is not to biopsy this lesion. The key message in this scenario is that any patient presenting with a pulsating mass, usually unilateral, needs special imaging to evaluate the extent. Paragangliomas can be bilateral, but it's not that common as, um, as unilateral um, presentation. Trauma can sometimes also be leading to a vascular mass with a possible traumatic aneurysm. I've heard of drug-induced lymphadenopathy. Uh, which drugs cause this and how do they present? The most common drugs, of course, then being phenytoin, being used for, um, for epilepsy, anti-tuberculous uh, medi medicine, allopurinol, usually being used for gout, and then, very important, immunizations. So, immunizations, specifically MMR, being used for measles, mumps, and rubella, DPT being used for diphtery, pertussis, and tetanus, as well as polio, can lead to lymphadenopathy. And now that you've gone through all the benign causes of lymphadenopathy, what about malignant causes? This is most probably the most important for more than one reason. Firstly, because it's the first thing every patient wants to exclude. And secondly, because we as clinicians are obliged not to miss the diagnosis. If it's the case, I mean, early diagnosis in most edinic cancers is totally curable with advanced disease not always being the case. Neoplastic conditions, and I want to I wanna stand still just for a while here, can be classified as benign or malignant. So neoplasia per se only means the uncontrolled growth of cells that's not under physiological control. So we're going to divide it into benign conditions and um, 
malignant conditions and are going to discuss it in, in that format as well. What would be some common benign conditions? A lipoma is the most common benign soft tissue tumor in the neck. It is a soft consistency and the patient will typically give a long-standing history of a slow-growing mass. It's painless and usually mobile. Other benign soft tissue neoplasms are, are less common. Now, 80% of parotid gland neoplasms are benign. These are usually pleomorphic adenomas and only about 50% of submandibular salivary glands are benign. So, How do we classify malignant lesions in the head and neck area? Malignant conditions in the neck and cervical region can usually be classified as primary or metastatic of nature. Now, malignant primary tumors usually arise, arise most commonly from the thyroid gland, the salivary glands, or the lymphoid tissue, for example, a patient presenting with lymphoma. Metastatic neck masses almost always ar arise from a squamous cell carcinoma in the upper digestive tract. This entails metastasis from a region in the aerodigestive tract to the lymphatics, and that's called the so the so-called nodal nodal disease or nodal metastasis. Can the site of presentation of these lymph nodes assist us with a diagnosis? As I mentioned earlier, the presentation is extremely, extremely important. A mass presenting at level 1A and 1B can represent a lymph node that's originating from a primary cancer in the oral cavity. That means the tongue, the floor of the mouth or the buccal area. Level 2, at the angle of the jaw, can represent a lymph node originating from a primary cancer in the oropharynx or the parotid region. It's especially important in such a case to examine your patient's tonsillar region and base of tongue. This can of course be done with direct inspection or digital examination by literally palpating the posterior third of the tongue with your finger. Level 3 and 4, that can usually represent the lymph node originating from a primary cancer in the larynx or the thyroid. Now, what complaints do these patients have? Your patient will typically present with laryngopharyngeal complaint, hoarseness, dysphagia, episodes of choking, unilateral otalgia, referred otalgia due to nerve involvement, difficulty breathing or even in severe cases, hemoptysis. What can level 5 lymph nodes represent? Level 5 can represent a lymph node originating from a primary cancer in the nasopharynx. As doctors, we will have, you will have to ask specifically about possible snoring, nasal blockage and hearing impairment. Why do these patients get hearing impairment? The reason for this is obliteration of the nasopharynx leading to obstructive symptoms and subsequent eustachian tube dysfunction. This leads to fluid buildup again in the middle ear with subsequent hearing impairment. It's also a typical presentation of a patient presenting with AIDS with generalized lymphadenopathy, nasal blockage, and hearing loss due to adenoidal enlargement due to the disease process. And these patients need to, re to refer to an ENT adenic surgeon to exclude, exclude lymphoma of the nasopharynx. Can you tell us anything about supraclavicular lymph nodes? Now, supraclavicular lymph nodes on the left side are called virtuo nodes. If it's clinically palpated, it's called a troisier sign. And the presence of nodes in this region is always, always supposed to raise red lights. This is usually secondary to a primary lung or gastrointestinal cancer. What would be important points to look for in a patient's history to determine what the causes of their head and neck mass? As in any patient presenting with a clinical problem, the idea is to make the diagnosis or at least have a differentiation, differential diagnosis after taking a proper history. 
The most common question that I think is extremely important to ask is the following. How long is the symptoms present? Is there any other associated symptoms suggestive of a possible underlying infection? Is there any associated pain? What is the patient's habits with emphasis here on smoking and alcohol? Is there a history of possible symptoms more concerning towards an underlying malignant process? And have your patient ever been tested for HIV? Can you give us a little bit more information about why we are asking each question? So let's start with the first question. How long is the symptoms present? The duration of the clinical complaints are most probably the most important. The reason being an acute or short duration are usually infective of nature with a slow and progressive course usually being benign. Cervical lymph adenitis is usually preceded by an upper respiratory tract infection and the patient can document a lot of times a history of painful glands. A mass usually being present for some period with rapid increase raised the concern for us as doctors of a possible underlying malignant process, especially in the presence of weight loss and loss of appetite. That being said, um, the before mentioned can also fit in with the congenital mass in a younger patient and suddenly enlarging after an upper tract respiratory infection. For example, a thyroglossal duct cyst becoming apparent suddenly in the midline. The key here is usually acute onset of symptoms are likely to be infective of nature, slow onset and suddenly enlargement likely to be malignant or slow progressive um, a progressive progression of disease likely to be malignant of nature. What about associated infections? The next question, is there any other associated symptoms suggestive of an underlying infection? This of course includes the presence of fever, malaise, coughing, a sore throat, adenophagia, rhinorrhea, bilateral otalgia with or without a blocked ear sensation and this can all be just indicative of an upper respiratory tract infection at the time or recently. Why is the presence of otalgia an important clinical sign? Now, an adult smoker presenting with otalgia more than two weeks and a normal ear examination needs a laryngoscopy to exclude oropharyngeal or laryngeal cancer. How do you interpret the presence of pain? As a rule, a sore throat is infective of nature and the history of recent infection and a palpable mass is more likely to be post-infective inflammatory of nature. Cancer in the neck, head and neck region can be painless or painful. Why is a history of alcohol intake and smoking important in these patients? The reason for this is due to the fact that up to 90% of cancers in the head and neck region are related to smoking and alcohol. Alcohol and smoking are synergistic, increasing your likelihood to develop cancer. Recent popularity, specifically in the usage of e-cigarettes or vape, led to studies confirming the before mentioned being just as carcinogenic and not that harmless um, as um, being believed. Are there specific symptoms that would make you more concerned that there's an underlying malignant process going on? Now, symptoms that always warrant further investigation include hemoptysis, hematemesis, any hoarseness longer than two weeks or any otolgia longer than two weeks, weight loss, loss of appetite, dysphagia and episodes of choking need further investigation. Is asking whether or not the patient's had an HIV test recently important in the clinical history? 
HIV is supposed to always form part of the estrogen due to the increased risk of developing lymphoma and presenting with pathological lymph at a lymph nodes um, alone or together with obstructive symptoms. I think let's move on to the clinical examination of the head and neck area specifically related to masses in that area and maybe you can give us some clinical pointers as to what the underlying pathology may be that we should really look for. Any patient that presents with a mass or lump need a thorough examination of A, not only the mass, but the whole neck, thinking the whole time about the anatomy as we discussed earlier, an emphasis on the major structures as well as the different levels of lymph node groups, and B, no mass can be evaluated without examining the scalp, the nose, the ears, the oral cavity, and oropharynx. The larynx and nasopharynx need to be evaluated by an ENT head and neck surgeon if the suspicion exists for the pathology being in that region. The concept is trying to identify any lesion in the head and neck that can explain a possible origin or if the mass is local of origin. Now, a few pointers try to assist in examining the mass are as follows. Is the mass a lymph node? Is the mass part of another structure? Is the mass fixed or is the mass mobile? So what is the consistency of that mass? Is it hard or soft? Is it mobile or fixed, like I said? Is it painful or painless? Now, acute inflammation usually tend to be tender and soft, although it can be hard, for example, a cellulitis just prior to becoming an abscess, where chronic inflammatory masses are often non-tender, rubbery, and either mobile or matted. Congenital masses are usually soft, mobile, and non-tender, unless they are infected. Malignant masses may be hard, non-tender, and fixed. So try to distinguish with your examination what kind of mass you are actually working with. Is it an acute process or is it a chronic process? Is it hard? Is it soft? Is it painful or painless? And then the last important thing, is it pulsating or not? Always think about a pulsatile mass being vascular of origin. Do we really have to examine the whole head and neck area for a neck mass? A complete head and neck examination is compulsory. You have to examine the scalp to exclude the possibility of a primary skin cancer. Also, specific look for any scars or recent scratches or bite marks. The patient sometimes forget about previous skin lesions being excised. And that can be the, uh, the current reason for a palpable lymph node secondary to a previous cancer presenting now as a metastatic um, lymph node or metastatic disease. Unilateral middle ear effusion or fluid buildup in the ear can be an indicator of eustachian tube dysfunction and a possible nasopharyngeal mass. Always, always try to connect your findings to one diagnosis before start making more than one diagnosis on a patient. What about examining the nose and mouth? The nasal examination may reveal a unilateral mass or discharge suspicious of a possible neoplasm. The mucosa of the oral cavity or oropharynx may reveal a primary malignancy. In particular, examine the lateral border of the tongue, the floor of the mouth, because the great majority of oral cancers arise from these areas. Make sure to evaluate the patient's dentition as a possible infective cause of cervical lymphadenitis. A unilateral asymmetrical enlarged tonsil may also sometimes suggest a neoplasm. Yes, not every patient presenting with a unilateral enlarged tonsil um, have cancer, but I think the important thing is to think about it. Alternatively, a normal-sized tonsil pushed across towards the midline can be 
not due to a primary tonsil neoplasm, but due to a peripharyngeal mass displacing the tonsil. Is patient positioning during the examination important? If you examine the oropharynx, examine your patient in the neutral position. This will align the vertebra and prevent wrongfully diagnosing an oropharyngeal mass and also assist in identifying tonsillar asymmetry and then lastly palpate the base of the tongue to exclude a mass. How do you examine a submandibular gland? An examination of your submandibular area can be assisted by bimanual palpation. This means using one hand to palpate the salivary gland and the other hand using your finger in the floor of the mouth to balutate that specific mass or gland. Why is it important to ask the patient to mimic swallowing while you examine them? Assessment of a mass with swallowing is just as important as movement from swallowing can suggest a lesion in the thyroid gland or it can be a thyroglossal cyst. Thyroglossal cyst will elevate with tongue protrusion and it's usually located in the midline. Never ever do an incision and drainage of a mass in the midline without excluding a thyroglossal cyst or the other masses being mentioned earlier. Is crepitus in the neck normal? presence of a crepitus on moving the larynx from one side to another is usually regarded as normal. The absence of that crepitus is regarded as abnormal. And then once again, be aware of a very prominent transverse process of C1 that can be mistaken as an abnormal mass. Can you briefly discuss which investigations are available to us to determine what hidden neck pathology there is in a patient? And can you maybe give us an idea of how you would approach the decision to which investigation to use in which scenario? The key here is not only to decide what investigation to use, but preferably the single one investigation leading to confirmation of one's diagnosis. In certain cases, yes, more than one investigation is needed, but that's definitely not supposed to be the standard. Do sonar. We can do CT imaging, MRI imaging, PET CT imaging. When would you use an ultrasound of the neck? Now sonar for me is a brilliant investigation to examine lymph nodes. It's safe, relatively cheap compared to all the other modalities and it's a brilliant tool for surveillance. It can also be used uh, to, find, to do fine needle aspirations or true cut biopsies. And the benefit of ultrasound is the ability to evaluate the architecture of a lymph node. And in experienced hands, it can differentiate sometimes between a normal and pathological node as well. It's well tolerated also in the kiddies. Um, so sonar for me personally, and also if you look at the literature, is a preferred modality when you evaluate lymph nodes in the neck and when you evaluate the thyroid. What is the role of CT scanning? CT imaging, and in specific contrast CT scanning, is the investigation of choice in any other mass other than a lymph node. It can be used to evaluate the primary cancer at the same time, uh, specifically if there's a concern of a possible uh, metastatic lesion. CT imaging is specifically also ideal to evaluate bony components and it can help a lot of times to exclude um, or diagnose bony infiltration. I guess the natural next question would be what is the role of MRI imaging in neck pathology? MRI imaging um, is an excellent choice to evaluate soft tissue and specifically for lesions in the peripharyngeal and intratemporal fossa. What is the role of fine needle aspiration in these patients? It's a simple office procedure. It's safe, it's relatively painless, and this is the optimal initial method for obtaining tissue samples. And it's got a high sensitivity and specificity and a low complication rate. Now, the most important complication that one can get is usually pain. Hematomas can sometimes occur. 
um, but they are usually small and localized and usually can be contained with direct, pre direct pressure. Can you summarize your approach to the investigation of a neck mass? The, the first line of investigation for a mass in the neck, if being a possible lymph node, is to do a fine needle aspiration. This can help to distinguish between a malignant or a benign lymph. This prevents unnecessary incision biopsies that can lead to tumor seeding. Now that you've just mentioned FNA, what is the role of a biopsy? If a diagnosis cannot be confirmed with a final aspiration or more tissue is needed, a biopsy is indicated. What is the difference between an incisional biopsy and an excisional biopsy? The difference between an incisional biopsy is usually um, the procedure where only a sample of that suspicious tissue is removed from a mass and is removed for the purposes of a diagnosis. An example of that is an ulcer of the tongue where a malignancy is suspected. The aim is not to remove the lesion at this specific setting, it's just to get a diagnosis. Compared to an incisional biopsy, so the entire lesion is removed. It's critical to understand this concept specifically in the region. And in the presence of suspected or already confirmed squamous cell carcinoma, I want to emphasize again, an incisional biopsy is an absolute contraindication due to the high probability of causing tumor seeding. In the event of an excisional biopsy, always attempt to do the incision in such a fashion to be incorporated if needed in follow-up surgery. An example of an excisional biopsy is a lymph node where a fine needle aspirate is indicative of possible lymphoma and a lymph node is requi required to classify that type of lymphoma. This has been quite a detailed discussion. Would you be able to give us a short summary of the most common lesions that we find in the neck and where they most commonly occur? A nice way to remember and classify these conditions can also be done by dividing it in masses presenting in the lateral aspect of the neck or in the midline. So let's look at the most common midline masses. The most common midline masses includes lymph nodes. It can be a lymphoma. It can be a dermoid cyst a sebaceous cyst. A midline mass can include a thyroid gland, and that's usually located just below the thyroid cartilage. It can be a thyroid nodule. It can be a single enlarged nodule in the thyroid, or it can be multiple nodules. And then, of course, lastly, to the thyroid glossal cyst. What are the common masses in the lateral aspect of the neck? Once again, can be lymph nodes, a lipoma, but then salivary gland swelling. Now, a salivary gland doesn't move on swallowing, and always think about a prim primary parotid neoplasm with a mass at the angle of the jaw just below the ear. It can be a brachial cyst that's usually there present from birth and it's sometimes even uh, only noticed the first time in adulthood when it can manifest as an infected lump. And then, very important, it can either be a carotid artery aneurysm or a carotid body tumor. It can be a laryngocele or it can be a plunging ran ranula. Do you have a few take-home messages for us? Yes, yeah, sure. Neck masses are common and most often due to lymphadenopathy secondary to a self-limited infection or inflammation. So always first think about recent infection as your first cause or infection at the time. A basic knowledge of the neck anatomy and structures are required. If you know the levels of the neck and the major structures, the diagnosis is a lot of times easy to establish by a thorough history of proper examination of the, and, and proper examination of the neck region. The differential diagnosis for me still stays. The three most important categories to distinguish are infective, congenital, and neoplastic. 
think it's, it's reasonable as a first-line management for a suspected infective or inflammatory mass to first give a, um, board, a course of broad-spectrum antibiotics and referral to a specialist if the mass doesn't resolve within two to three weeks. Remember that lymph adenopathy due to an inflammatory disease usually resolves within four weeks. So the typical, typical picture that I want to use as an example is a patient that presents with a, a palpable lymph node with no other reason being identified for the possible lymph node. And to treat that then with a course of antibiotics with a follow-up within two to three weeks and if it's not subsiding, uh, to refer appropriately to a neck surgeon. And then finally, I would like to emphasize, all suspected neoplastic and congenital masses should be referred for specialist attention. And if you are not sure, consult. It's never wrong to ask a specialist advice if you're not sure. Thank you, Dr. Klocher. You've managed to give us a lot of information in a very nice, structured manner. And we look forward to hearing from you in future podcasts. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh, and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. 